Hello, I'm Peter Mayers. Welcome to Big Ideas and the 2010 Boyer Lectures on ABC Radio National. This year's speaker is Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. His subject is Higher Education in the 21st Century. Professor Davis has called his series The Republic of Learning, a concept he introduced in the first lecture. In subsequent presentations, Professor Davis analyses specific aspects of tertiary education. Last week it was teaching, and today he turns his attention to research. These two aspects of academic life are often in tension, with teaching leaving little time for research or vice versa. Sometimes research is viewed sceptically as just an excuse for idleness. But there's ample proof that it can make a real difference to the world, as in the life work of Australian virologist Professor Frank Fenner, who died in Canberra on Monday. Professor Fenner oversaw the global eradication of smallpox and helped control Australia's rabbit plague through the introduction of myxomatosis. Frank Fenner won many awards for those achievements, but his first honour, an MBE, came much earlier in his career. It was bestowed in 1945 for his work on malaria in Papua New Guinea. And the effort to combat malaria provides the starting point for the third Boyer Lecture as a concrete example of research in action and the importance of collaboration across institutions and across disciplines. Here's our Boyer lecturer, Professor Glyn Davis. University research takes a pressing problem and explores it from every angle. Specialists drawn from many fields and institutions race to understand the puzzle. As philosopher Michael Oakeshott said about universities in general, research is a conversation that does not need a chairman. It has no predetermined course and we do not judge its excellence by its conclusion. For research has no conclusion, always just the next puzzle to explain. Take disease. When modern humans left Africa more than 60,000 years ago, they carried not just cultures and languages that would spread across the planet, but less welcome passengers such as malaria. Its effects have been felt ever since. For most of human history, the nature and causes of malaria were just not understood. Then, in 1902, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to Sir Ronald Ross, a British army surgeon working in India, who proved the malaria parasite is transmitted by mosquitoes. His Nobel citation proclaimed that he had laid the foundation for successful research on this disease and methods of combating it. Yet victory over the disease has proved elusive. More than a century later, malaria afflicts a significant proportion of humanity. It's true that malaria is all but eliminated from the developed world. Countries such as Australia record only a small number of cases, the result of travellers returning from affected areas. Yet in the developing world, some 3.3 billion people remain at risk, half the world's population. Malaria has become a disease of the poor. The research effort to address malaria is diverse and global. It engages social science experts in demographics, epidemiology, history and conflict, who work alongside geneticists and biologists and immunologists and a range of specialist medical researchers. For malaria has proved a problem more complex than originally imagined. 
It's called into being a worldwide research effort, a grand endeavour beyond institutional boundaries or national borders, a manifestation of the Republic of Learning in which knowledge is shared and developed by communities of scholars. The endeavour to find a vaccine or long-term cure is the Republic of Learning at its best. It suggests the character of contemporary research, driven by problems but operating without central coordination, a network of researchers who know each other's work through rapid publication, a virtual community that absorbs new developments quickly and incorporates them into a shared base of knowledge. It's an approach that can produce remarkable results. Deadly diseases have been understood and eliminated. Take smallpox. For perhaps 3,000 years, smallpox killed up to one in three people infected by the virus. Those who survived carried scars for life, and many were afflicted with blindness. At the close of the 18th century, Edward Jenner tested his theory that milkmaids avoided smallpox by being infected by the less extreme cowpox. Over time, this led to the development of a smallpox vaccination. Although successful in 1796, it was not until 1967 that planning and technology could support a global eradication campaign on smallpox, which still threatens 60% of the world's population. This World Health Organization program proved astonishingly successful, drawing in large part on the research of Frank Fenner, an Australian expert in virology at the Australian National University. Within a decade, the last naturally occurring case of smallpox was confined to Somalia. No further cases have been identified outside the laboratory anywhere on the planet during the last 30 years. Similar hopes for eliminating malaria have been frustrated, despite an international effort and philanthropic support from the Gates Foundation. Malaria is a debilitating and often fatal disease. It is rife in sub-Saharan Africa and is also a major cause of illness in the Asia-Pacific region. Society does poorly when malaria does well. It's hard to break the cycle of poverty when sickness prevails. As Ronald Ross established, malaria is an infection of the blood transmitted through a parasite of the mosquito. To reproduce, the female mosquito requires blood. If a person bitten is already infected with malaria, the parasite is taken in with the blood and begins the next stage of its life cycle. This only occurs in a warm climate. At less than 18 degrees Celsius, transmission is unlikely. Malaria is therefore a disease of the tropical zone, at least for the moment, given the potential for shifts in climate and population. Transmission begins when the mosquito takes a subsequent meal, allowing the parasite to transfer to a second person. Once the malaria parasite enters the bloodstream, it finds and invades a red blood cell. The process takes only 30 seconds. The parasite transforms the surface of the human red blood cell, making it sticky and able to attach to the wall of a blood vessel. Surface changes mean the infected cell will not be detected and destroyed by the immune system. The parasite then reproduces at an astonishing rate in this protected environment. As they reproduce and multiply, the parasites release toxins that cause fever. 
Some 10 days after the mosquito bite, the first symptoms emerge, usually headache and vomiting. As the disease progresses, symptoms become more severe. Those infected with malaria risk major damage when the parasites attack the brain, the lungs, and in the case of pregnant women, the placenta. Anemia is common as red blood cells are destroyed and cannot be replaced. Respiratory distress occurs as the infection makes the blood more acidic, particularly in small children. Cerebral malaria occurs when infected cells stick to blood vessels in the brain. The patient becomes confused, suffers convulsions and falls into coma. Mortality is high, even when medical services are good. The World Health Organization reported over 247 million cases of malaria and almost a million deaths in 2008 alone. Most occur in Africa, where malaria contributes to around 20% of all childhood deaths. Fatalities are lower in Asia, but malaria continues to claim lives and health in many parts of our region, including Papua New Guinea. It is unlikely there will be a single solution to malaria. There appears no straight line from question to answer, only a slow realisation of how intricate nature can be and the difficulties of preventing a disease that has spent tens of thousands of years adapting to humans. The fight against malaria is therefore a classic research problem requiring the combined intellect of public health professionals, social and biological scientists. There are practical measures, education about risk, draining swamplands and other breeding grounds for mosquitoes, supplying insect screen doors, windows and mosquito nets. Epidemiologists have identified the range of the disease and patterns of infection. Public health research encourages risk identification and prevention. While no effective vaccination is available, pharmacologists have identified some compounds that inhibit or slow infection. Quinine was known from the 17th century, while today artemisinin is one of the most effective antimalarial drugs drawing on traditional Chinese medicine. Because the malaria parasite quickly develops resistance to individual drugs, combination therapies are required. Yet even these are unlikely to remain effective, and in the longer term, new approaches are necessary. Eliminating swamps, use of insecticides, school education programs, and the building of complex irrigation and dam systems eradicated malaria in Italy, a goal that took almost a 100 years to achieve. This concerted government effort is not always a viable strategy in Africa or Asia. For the moment, while the research is pursued across the world, the Rollback Malaria Partnership advocates a combination of new anti-malaria drugs, pesticides, vaccination research, the distribution of insecticide-treated bed netting and landscape management. As Dr. Halima Wenesi, an expert in public health and policy working in South Africa, observed, insights from anthropology, sociology, demography and geography health economics and policy, social psychology, epidemiology and behaviour change communication have permeated all areas of our response to malaria. We now know how humans respond to malaria and this knowledge has enabled us to build fairly strong multidisciplinary malaria prevention, management and control programs. 
Dr. Wenesi observed that until recently, a contribution from the social sciences seemed an afterthought to scientific work on malaria. It has taken bitter experience to realise the solution will not be found in biochemistry alone. While we wait for a cure, malaria continues to kill millions. Because human beings are integral to the life cycle of the parasite, our activities and responses to the disease matter. Understanding human behaviour is the province of the humanities and social sciences. Hence, recent decades have seen a significant contribution to fighting malaria from experts who study the range, history and distribution of people in infected areas, their religious beliefs and gender roles, patterns of trade, ceremony and interaction, local understandings of illness and the most effective ways to achieve behavioural change. Infected women and children usually sicken and die in their homes. How to alert medical services to their illness. How to arrange diagnosis in communities without doctors. Or administer precise dosages when people lack familiarity with Western medicine. Social science has encouraged experiment and monitoring. In some communities, for example, shopkeepers can be trained to diagnose and treat malaria-like illness. They are more likely to have routine contact with patients and are trusted community members. Malaria intervention at local level depends on understanding the consequences of gender and poverty and cultural norms about compliance. By researching how people live and move, public health officials are able to predict the spread of the disease and to evaluate the effectiveness of measures to contain the sickness. It is one thing to develop effective anti-malarial strategies in the laboratory, another entirely to predict how the campaign will be accepted by those who must adopt its measures. Australia has long made a strong contribution to this global effort. The identification of malaria in northern Australia led to the establishment of the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Townsville in 1910, followed by the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine at the University of Sydney in 1930. During the Second World War, malaria posed a significant threat to Australian troops. Physician Neil Fairley left the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to work with Australian soldiers as they fought in malaria-infected theatres. His field observations helped increase understanding of the disease and promote use of the few available anti-malaria drugs. In the following decades, research leaders such as Graham Mitchell and Sir Gus Nossel encouraged scientists to apply recent advances in biomedical research to address infectious diseases of global significance. The establishment of a dedicated malaria group at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne signalled a strong commitment to the field and a recognition that complex problems require large teams, long time frames and sustained funding. There have been moments of great hope. In the 1980s, Dr David Kemp, Robin Anders and their teams, working at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, created a genetically engineered prototype vaccine, a partnership with the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, CSL, Biotechnology Australia and the Papua New Guinea Institute of Medical Research, supported vaccine trials. Meanwhile, also at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, Professor Alan Cowman used molecular biology techniques to understand drug resistance. 
he developed a technique for adding and removing parasite genes, which offered the prospect of reducing the danger from the parasite while stimulating an immune response if given to humans. Today, Dr. Crystal Evans continues that research, seeking a gene-based solution to malaria. She and her colleagues pursue the vision of a live, genetically modified vaccine against Plasmodium falciparum, the parasite that causes the form of malaria most deadly to humans. Close by at La Trobe University, biochemist Professor Leanne Tilly collaborates with physicists to develop sharper images of the malarial parasite at work within individual cells. 2,000 kilometres north, at the Quinton Institute of Medical Research in Brisbane, Dr Tim Hurst works on controlling mosquitoes at the household level with the goal of reducing the spread of diseases. Not far away, at the School of Population Health within the University of Queensland, Professor Maxine Whitaker is collaborating on regional responses through the Asia-Pacific Malaria Elimination Network. At the Research School of Biology at the ANU in Canberra, Dr Kieran Kirk and Dr Rowena Martin, a recent recipient of a Eureka Prize for Early Career Research, seek ways to combat malaria drug resistance. In Perth, postgraduate physicist Stefan Karl at the University of Western Australia continues his award-winning work on the changing magnetic properties of malaria-infected cells. While in Hobart, Professor Simon Foote leads a team at the Menzies Research Institute Tasmania investigating different host responses to infection. As the Hobart team observes, though the malaria parasite infects many infants, only some succumb to the disease. If they can understand the reasons for these differences, it may be possible to develop new anti-malaria therapies, particularly for children. At the University of Newcastle, Dr. Janet Zator, within the Faculty of Business and Law, has investigated links between health and economic development, with an emphasis on malaria control programs in Africa. In Darwin, the Menzies School of Health Research works to understand better the impact of Plasmodium vivax, the form of malaria prominent in the Asia-Pacific region. This brief survey barely sketches the depth and quality of malaria research across Australia. Just one problem amongst many. The quest to end malaria shows that large problems require complex answers, significant time and often substantial resources. The contemporary research model is cross-disciplinary, involving many institutions, international partnerships and international funding. In research, the Republic of Learning extends beyond universities to embrace institutes, hospitals, think tanks, government departments, pharmaceutical companies, startups, and not for profits. All share a passion for understanding the fundamentals of our world and ourselves. These many different institutions must compete for a limited pool of research funding and even more limited public interest. Yet from disease control to economic theory, the work done by our researchers can be life-changing. Research can be personally inspiring, but challenging all the same. Dr Crystal Evans explains, There's something about the thrill of the chase when you are seeking the answers to your questions that I find extremely rewarding. 
On a day-to-day level, research can be very repetitive, incredibly precise and exacting. But I've been to malaria-endemic countries. I've seen malaria in action, not just down a microscope, and so that keeps me going. Research is not an ancient function of Australian universities. For the first century of tertiary education in this country, the purpose of a university was teaching. Following British tradition, universities imparted knowledge and good character to their students. In The Idea of a University, written in 1852, John Henry Newman saw cultivation of the intellect through teaching universal knowledge as the sole purpose of a university. There could be no place for research. Scientific and philosophical discovery were not appropriate for an institution focused on students. For Newman, scholars engaged in teaching were too busy to do research, while those engaged in research were much too preoccupied for teaching. It was a tradition that could see classicist Benjamin Jowett, Master of Balliol College at Oxford, growl, research, a mere excuse for idleness. It has never achieved and will never achieve any results of the slightest value. Yet outside Britain, very different understandings of the university emerged. Wilhelm von Humboldt established the idea of a research teaching nexus in Berlin in 1810. This German research tradition in higher education was carried to the United States, first to the East Coast private universities and soon after to the land-grant public universities established from 1862. These proved important first in agricultural and then in scientific and engineering research, helping America become the world's industrial centre. The idea that university teaching should be animated by research, and indeed that a university might play an important role in technological development, was not well received in Australia. Early attempts to hire academics with a research interest proved controversial. The duty of a professor, said one council member at the University of Melbourne in 1878, is to impart, not invent. It would take decades before universities acquired the people, the facilities and the confidence to make research core to their vision. The first Australian doctoral student did not graduate until 1948. In that same decade, the Australian National University and the University of New South Wales were established, both with charters to contribute to national progress through fundamental research. By the time Australian universities embraced research as a central function, they no longer had the field to themselves. In 1926, the Australian government turned an existing advisory body into the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, an organisation that in 1949 was renamed and flourishes still as the CSIRO. From an initial focus on primary and secondary industries, farming, mining and manufacturing, the CSIRO has become Australia's national science agency and one of the largest and most diverse research agencies in the world. The research space was filled also with the first medical research institutes, often with a focus on a particular disease or condition. Many of Australia's hospitals undertake world-leading research, often with crucial links to patient care and the coordination of clinical trials. In this small world, 
a handful of medical researchers have become national heroes, and rightly so. Peter Doherty is celebrated for his joint discovery of how the immune system recognises virus-infected cells. Barry Marshall and Robin Warren for proving that spiral bacteria causes stomach ulcers. Ian Fraser for finding a vaccine for the papillomavirus that causes cervical cancer. And Elizabeth Blackburn for explaining the implications for health and ageing of telomeres, the caps that protect chromosomes. They are matched by public intellectuals from the humanities and social sciences who speak about our lives together. Historians and anthropologists, demographers and English literature specialists who help us grasp who and what we are. As the fight against malaria shows, research is a continuum, pure and applied, basic and practical, across fields and domains, hard to predict or direct. What appears obtuse at one time can become central. Knowledge is not divisible, but always connected. Just as we need different sorts of universities to offer distinct visions of education, so research problems require competing teams and diverse groupings of academic disciplines. As with malaria, what today seems a scientific problem to be addressed by unlocking some subtle mechanism of nature may be tomorrow understood primarily as about human behaviour, best approached by designing new social, cultural or economic institutions. What then enables the best research? Well, money helps. Australia has a modest record when it comes to research investment, spending a similar ratio of gross domestic product as Canada and Great Britain, but far less than the United States, Japan or South Korea. Australian research agencies cannot afford to fund fully those projects they support. And, with limited resources, often only one in five grant applications is successful. But good research requires more than cash. It needs a supportive environment, which means recognising that economic returns may be distant, even impossible. It requires time and encouragement, support to explore the intriguing, knowing that the results may prove inconsequential. Research needs the best and most committed minds. It demands patience, integrity, a willingness to take risks, a high tolerance for failure since much will not work or not produce the hoped-for results. In a world of blind alleys, the research process demands we push toward acquiring new knowledge in spite of the inevitable disappointments along the journey. Given this essential character of research, there's no point prescribing expected outcomes. Discovery cannot be planned or mandated. Researchers begin with a goal in mind, but the more complex the problem, the less certain the path. Hence the importance of multiple teams, competing approaches, different theories about an issue. The best way to have a good idea, said twice Nobel Prize winning chemist Linus Pauling, is to have a lot of ideas. The research community works best when many paths are explored simultaneously. Instant publication via the web ensures knowledge is spread quickly and insights from one approach inform teams elsewhere. Through the logic of testing hypotheses, what Karl Popper described as making our successive mistakes as quickly as possible, knowledge advances.
There are heartbreaks along the way, and the path can be long. In the 1970s, a breakthrough seemed imminent when researchers proved able to cultivate malaria in a laboratory. Similar successes for polio led to widely used live vaccines. These trigger an immune response and the body learns how to defeat any future infection. But sadly, the technique did not work for malaria. So attention switched to genetic solutions, made possible by the advances in cultivating malaria in the lab. Again, the logic seemed promising. Malaria produces proteins that stimulate the immune system. Biologists learn to isolate the genes that make these proteins and copy them into living organisms such as E. coli, capable of producing the protein in vast quantities. When injected with the protein, our bodies should produce the necessary immune response to fight malaria. Yet again, progress proved disappointing. It's hard to find the right proteins. Variation means it has been challenging to trigger an immune response. Just as high variability in the common cold virus leaves us susceptible even though we've been infected many times before. Three decades of gene-based research have produced only a few prototype vaccines, with only one at the Phase 3 trial stage. So attention has returned to infection prevention and to live vaccines for the mosquito stage of malaria. Researchers now study how the human body responds to the entire malaria organism. A line of research largely abandoned 30 years ago has renewed hopes of an effective response. This is how research proceeds. Building on previous knowledge, trying and failing, pursuing many options in the hope that one will provide the next step forward. Public investment in such research produces two key benefits for society. The first is all around us, the numerous ways our lives are made better. Improvements to health science have produced an almost threefold improvement in life expectancy for the developed world and hopes for similar outcomes for all humanity. Research can cure a disease, provide the gift of hearing, explain how to improve outcomes in primary classrooms, help us understand the language, culture and philosophy of our neighbours and ourselves. Rolling back malaria is not just about developing new and better medicines. By freeing people from a debilitating disease, we provide them with a chance to realise their capability to make their contribution to do more than worry about the survival of their children. The second benefit is the opportunity opened up for the human race. At its most impressive, research speaks truth to power, embodying the Enlightenment ideal of using evidence to interrogate the world. In this sense, research is a public good, a contribution to humanity that cannot be valued with conventional measures, yet proves essential for a fragile planet. Research confronts us with inconvenient truths, unwelcome insights. We now debate climate change because accumulated research indicates this is a major issue. Some argue with the evidence, as they should. But the sheer weight of evidence makes the risks hard to ignore. We must hope research findings will influence policy choices. 
knowledge can liberate, motivating us to tackle the problems of the world. Every university campus contains a microcosm of the Republic of Learning. Within its walls are experts in political science, architecture, physics, demography, indigenous studies, education, genetics, economics, classics. Researchers interact. Unexpected projects and alliances form. As problems change, as new ideas emerge, so do the conversations across campus. New knowledge is generated between as well as within buildings. Because universities endure, their research effort is continuous and long-lived. Abandoned threads can be revived, new disciplines embraced. The research team can be reconfigured to suit the problem. Knowledge may be codified in journal articles and monographs, but it's carried forward by a living community, an endless transmission from teacher to student, from peer to peer, from professor to the newest research associate. The tradition of graduate research training means the generations overlap continuously, each learning from the other. Every malaria researcher might hope to solve the problem, but more likely those students they train will prevail. Research reflects and expresses the spirit of the university and the wider republic of learning at its most inspirational. No mere excuse for idleness, research is the way we investigate and change our world. Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, delivering the third 2010 Boyer Lecture in his series The Republic of Learning.